Hello and welcome back to In Short. I'm your host, Alicia, an audiobook producer and director. And every other week we'll open with a new author's short story that we've recorded for you. Then, following each, I'll be sitting down to chat with the author. We'll talk about writing, the spark of inspiration, and the process of recording and narrating their story. Then, at the end of this mini-series, I'll be trying to write and narrate my own short story, informed by all the wonderful people I've talked with. We'll also have bonus episodes focusing on audiobooks along the way. Chats with industry professionals, interviews with authors, and anyone else I can get to talk to me about audiobooks. This week, we have a short story by Tina Isanipour. Tina is an Iranian-born, California-raised writer and high school English teacher. Her work has appeared in various presses, including Nowruz Journal, as well as on stage with Golden Thread Productions. Never outgrowing her childhood obsession with the magical, she enjoys writing fiction with a touch of magic. Tina lives with her husband and twins in the Bay Area, where she can be found experimenting in the kitchen or tweeting about books, teaching, and other random things. So please, sit back and enjoy this short story from Tina's Blanket Fort in the Bay Area. Next Stop, Dreams, by Tina Esanipour. I read once that if you give people eye contact, they'll leave you alone. It's supposed to make you look confident, but that clearly isn't the case with principles. Because Mr. Jensen has been grilling me for the last 15 minutes and will not let up. And given how horribly my morning started today, his office is the very last place I want to be. But it would have been a red flag if I'd stayed home. There would be phone calls, and when those phone calls weren't answered, there would be a visit from the van. Better to not raise any unnecessary suspicion today. But clearly, my body didn't get that memo when it fell asleep in class. He gives me another car salesman grin. Azar, listen, I promise you won't get in trouble if you tell the truth. Lie. I've been in this office enough to know he's got a special blue button under his desk which alerts the authorities. And the big poster above his desk with the school motto reflects his loyalty to the Bureau of Logic. Logic lasts. Imagination is a thing of the past. But I am telling the truth. You're implying you don't trust the bearer of logic, Mr. Jensen. After all, I'm sure the scientists have been very thorough in their testing of the vitamins. I know I shouldn't, but I can't help the sarcasm seeping out of my voice with that word. Maman says vitamins used to mean something very different when she was a little girl. Don't think about her right now, Azar. I command my brain before my face gives away anything. I don't need to give Mr. Jensen any more reason to keep me here. His face turns crimson. Well, um, he clears his throat. <laughs> yes, er, I'm sure the scientists have done everything they can to ensure they are keeping you all safe. But sometimes there are manufacturing errors. He opens his desk drawer and takes out a small blue bottle. This extra supplement, just in case. He hands me the pill and watches as I put it in my mouth. Little does he know, I snuck a piece of gum in my mouth while he was finding the bottle. Who would have thought spearmint could do more than freshen your breath? 
glad this stressful morning hasn't kept me from thinking quickly on my feet. Unable to get anything else out of me, he sends me back to class. When I've rounded the corner, I spit out the gum with vitamin center into the trash. If there's something my parents drilled into me, it was to never take vitamins from anyone else, especially at school. The bell rings and students move quietly and quickly to their new class. Like a good best friend, Luis is waiting for me down the hall so we can walk to math together. So what happened? Did you get logic time after school again? I shake my head, thankful I won't be spending another afternoon solving logic problems to develop the right side of my brain. My mom said they used to call it detention, and you would just sit in a room doing homework or reading or sleeping if the teacher wasn't that strict. Imagine that, falling asleep without someone thinking it could be dangerous. I know you weren't dreaming when you fell asleep in class today. I mean, obviously you take your vitamins every morning. He shakes his head as if it's unfathomable that anyone would not want to follow the rules. I mean, sometimes our faces make movements in our sleep that are purely physiological. I contemplate telling him about my dream, but I don't know how to even describe the flash of images. A bus, the midnight sky, and what felt like a billion blinding stars. All I know is that it felt like home. Maybe dreams have slipped into his brain too from time to time, the fragments lingering there like distant memories. But then I remember, this is Luis. If he had a dream, he wouldn't be able to keep it from me, or the authorities for that matter. He'd see it as an affliction, not a gift that magically slipped by the rules. I hate lying to him. But the last thing he needs is to worry about me, and whether he should turn me in for my own sake. Which is why I also haven't mentioned the letter I found on the kitchen counter when I woke up this morning. If he comes over this weekend and asks, I'll just tell him my parents are on another work trip. When we get to class, he turns to me, his pinky extended. Just promise me you'll try harder to stay awake in class. Graduation is just a year away, and if I'm not sitting next to you... I'm going to be bored out of my mind by Mr. Jens's senior send-off speech. I give him our signature pinky promise, hoping one day his rule-following self will realize imagination isn't as bad as we've been told since nursery school. Later that afternoon, when I'm walking home, I give myself permission to reach into my pocket and take out the necklace that's been hidden all day. I probably should have left it at home. But if the government officials are really onto my parents' role in the resistance movement, like the letter said, then couldn't they technically search our house and take the one possession I've been tasked with keeping safe? I examine the pendant, trying to understand the engraved zigzag of lines and arrows on the greenish-gray stone. When I start coughing, I realize I forgot to put on my mask. Sometimes when I'm at school, it's easy to forget the world is falling apart outside that there is always a new fire burning down neighborhoods and more pollution being released into the air. You'd think these greedy corporations would realize it's in their best interest to keep the population alive, to keep consuming, but they don't care about the world going to hell as long as they're living their best life when it does. It wasn't always like this, apparently. My story-obsessed dad loves to talk about when schools encouraged imagination. 
Kids would play in parks, donned in superhero costumes, acting out elaborate plot lines. When teachers asked students to recount their dreams in the morning, it wasn't to report them to the authorities. It was to give flight to their imagination. What if Baba is no longer here to tell me these stories about the past? Snap out of it, I tell myself. You need to stay calm. I can't help but wonder what it's like in other countries who reacted differently to the point of no return. While some refused to give up, the United States instead eradicated dreams and therefore hope, convinced it would stop the chaos that would ensue. When we learn about that fateful day, the awakening, they call it, it's always about how logic won, how a decision was made to accept the end of the world and not panic, to just continue as if nothing was wrong. Not surprisingly, schools don't teach much about the resistance, unless it's something in the news about how a member was recently arrested for an attempt to destroy government brain research. We're told that these rebels are different from the protesters in our country's past who were fighting for voting rights or racial equity. Those revolutionaries lived in a different world than we do now. While it was logical for them to actively push for change, what we need in our current society is calm. And there seems to be this impression that calm comes from reason, not emotion, as if the two cannot coexist. A few minutes later, I open the front door to my house, unable to deny the emptiness I've been ignoring all day at school. It's not like my parents haven't left me by myself in the past, but I can't help but wonder if all their work trips were really trips for the resistance. I'm sure my parents are okay. Of course they're okay. I mean, if the officials were that suspicious, they'd have sent more than just my principal to question me about an innocent nap in bio. Thankfully, it's Friday, and I have the whole weekend to process. I'm putting away the leftovers of my favorite weekday pasta dish, linguine with bottled sauce spruced up with jarred sun-dried tomatoes and green olives. When I notice the black van across the street, it's marked with big white blocked letters on the side door, LTF. Why would the logic task force be in my neighborhood? My pulse starts to race as I realize I'm alone and no one will know if they take me. There was a kid in my English class last year who was taken by the LTF. He had the nerve to do more than just dream. He wrote about it for his free choice essay. It was Friday, first period, when they called him into the office. Whispers wandered the halls all day, wondering if he would be transferred to one of those high-security schools where they do daily brain scans to make sure you have no traces of dreams. That shit gets expensive, though, so it's only for students who really need that kind of monitoring. But apparently, Eddie's first offense wasn't bad enough to land him there. He returned on Monday acting totally normal, well, except for the confused look he'd give anyone who was brave enough to ask what they did to him. They either wiped his memories or scared him so bad it wasn't hard to act like he had never written that ballsy essay in the first place. Not being much of an actor, that means I'd probably have my memories erased. Um, no thank you. Which is why I grab one of my parents' emergency backpacks from the cabinet and head to the basement. I can do this, I tell myself double-checking my pockets for the necklace and letter. Before I go, I turn on the radio, hoping if someone does break in, they won't realize I've left, 
That should buy me a few more minutes. Grabbing the flashlight at the base of the stairs, I walk carefully down and move the rug from the center of the basement floor. I didn't know about the secret door until last week. My parents must have realized the government was onto them because they started telling me things. This is where we keep the bag just in case, Azar. This is the door that will take you to safety. This bottle of vitamins, you need to take them every single day, even if we're not here. This is a list of friends you can call if you ever find yourself in trouble. Yes, we know you don't recognize all these names, but they're friends. Had I paid more attention, maybe I wouldn't have been so surprised when I learned of their involvement with the resistance through the letter. My mom must have been in a rush because her usual steady handwriting slanted frantically in places, and there were at least three reminders to use the trapdoor if I found myself in trouble and they weren't back home yet. I think it's safe to say I have officially found myself in trouble. A series of beeps sound when I open the door, and I tell myself it's nothing to worry about. Probably just an alarm my parents installed and forgot to tell me about. Whatever awaits me on the other side of the door is better than what will happen if I stay here. Thankfully, I'm not claustrophobic. The pathway is narrow and the smell of dirt is so strong I feel like I'm being buried alive. It's supposed to take me to the forest at the edge of our town. It's one of the only forests left around here, and it's so overgrown, I guess the government didn't think it was worth the money to remove the trees and build another massive office structure for themselves. It feels like an hour later, but according to my phone, it's only been seven minutes when the path comes to an abrupt end. It takes every bit of strength in my non-existent biceps to push the metal door above my head open. When I emerge outside, it's hard to tell what's more frightening. The glorified coffin I was walking through or the creepy forest I've ended up in. I stare at the bus 10 feet in front of me, struggling to imagine a world where buses actually took students to school. You'd think they would have kept buses. After all, it feels logical having one vehicle carry multiple students to the same place. But apparently, it created too many opportunities for conversation, which invariably led to imagination. I push aside the branches an inch towards the door. My mom's letter said it would look deserted, and she wasn't wrong. The yellow paint looks muddied, and the windows look so grimy you can't see inside. The metal sounds against my knuckles as I knock four times on the door. Two fast whacks, followed by a 10-second pause, and finally, two slow taps. I hope I remembered that detail correctly. What if it was only supposed to be five seconds long? What if nobody opens the door and I'm stuck here in the forest by myself, unable to go back home? I'm about to take out the letter and double-check how long the pause is supposed to be when the door creaks open and a guy around my age pops his head out. His eyes reflect a moment of shock before he smooths away the emotion. Not that I thought I'd be greeted with a welcoming party at the bus, but I was hoping to at least be expected when I arrived. Yes, he asks, his deep voice as mesmerizing as his head of curls. I bet he doesn't even have to use a special conditioner. Uh, I'm Azar. My parents, Atta and Firuza, left a note that said I should come here if... Before I can continue explaining why I'm here, he grabs my wrist and pulls me inside. 
Did anyone follow you? Uh, I, uh, don't think so. I mean, there was this van outside my house, but I snuck through the basement passageway, so they couldn't have seen me. I don't know why I'm so nervous. You'd think I'd be better at keeping my cool after so many interrogations by my principal. But I'm not, because suddenly everything I've been feeling since this morning gushes out. Listen, I don't know why my parents didn't think it was important to fill me in earlier on their secret lives. I literally only learned today from a damn letter that they were even part of the resistance. And I don't know how they thought directions to this bus would be enough preparation to confidently run from the authorities. He must realize I'm about to cry because he puts his hand on my shoulder and looks earnestly into my eyes. They were just trying to protect you, Azar. I'm glad you're here. His eyes soften, and as much as I enjoy the attention from this beautiful, long-lashed boy, I wish it wasn't with this level of pity. Why don't you sit down, and I could fill in some of the blanks. Want some water? I nod my head and sit, the vinyl making a sound as I lower myself into the seat. When he returns with a glass of water, I can't help but notice the mint leaf floating on the surface. My favorite. Just because we're in hiding doesn't mean we can't enjoy spa water. He smiles, putting the chilled glass into my hand. Thanks, uh, I stutter, realizing he never introduced himself. I want to ask, but maybe they don't use real names in the resistance movement? Oh, sorry, my name is Joaquin, but I go by Q here. Q because he's a cutie, I think in my head, but thankfully don't say out loud. There's something oddly familiar about Q, but I'm sure I'd remember a face like that. Maybe the truth is I kind of want there to be something familiar about him. And this is why I am not cut out to be part of this resistance movement. In times of danger, I'm crushing on a boy more than worrying about the fact that my family is in trouble with the authorities. He must be expecting me to ask about the nickname, because without prompting, he adds, it's because I'm the question man. I make sure people aren't infiltrating our group the way every other group has been infiltrated throughout history. He drains the rest of his own water before picking out the mint and chewing it. But don't worry, I'm not going to ask you questions because it's clear I don't know anything, I finish for him. Maybe that means you can answer some of my questions then, Q. He gives me a quick smile and slides into the seat across from me. That's not what I usually do, but sure, I guess I can make an exception for Fiduza's daughter. I wonder if this means my mother has a high post in the organization. There were so many questions swimming in my head. Like, how did my non-imposing, even-tempered scientist mom not only join a resistance movement, but be high enough in there that her daughter gets special treatment? Or like, how does this Q guy know more about her than her own daughter does? But I don't know if I'm ready for those answers yet. So I ask an interview-style question instead. So, like, besides obviously resisting the government's efforts at control, what exactly do you all do in the resistance? We dream. You what? I lean in, not sure I heard him correctly. Dream. He tucks his finger under the collar of his shirt and pulls at a chain I hadn't noticed before. I can't help but stare. The pendant looks too similar to mine to be a coincidence. I'm about to ask him the meaning of the markings when he continues. The resistance movement has been around from the very beginning. 
It started with a group of people who refused to accept we'd reached the point of no return. They weren't like those absurd climate change deniers, but they believed in humanity's ability to find ways to rebuild society, even if the effects of our actions could no longer be reversed. They had their own group of scientists and philosophers. They believed viable change could only be created through a creative approach. At first, they went to the government, hoping they could reason with the Bureau of Logic, considering they are supposed to be logical after all, he adds with a slight chuckle. But they were, perhaps not surprisingly, not interested in hearing any new ideas. They had already made up their minds. So they created our vitamins, which led to our own scientists creating the antivitamin. He pulls out a small green canister from his jacket pocket and shows me the contents. I peer into the bottle before examining the overhead lights. Those look like the ones my mom gives me every morning. Suddenly, my chest tightens, and I realize there's a possibility I won't see her or my dad again. When I was younger, I used to ask why our vitamins looked more green than blue. And she said it was just our kitchen light that made them look that way. She couldn't have you telling your teachers in elementary school. Sometimes we lie to protect the people we love. At that moment, he looks older, and I can't help but wonder what pain he's experienced, because it's clear he has. Maybe he lost his own parents or a younger sibling. I mean, is that why he's in this bus? I look around. There's no bedding or anything else that would indicate he lives here. Maybe he was waiting here for me? Just in case? I'm not going to lie. That last thought brings a little heat to my cheeks. I hope he doesn't notice. Hugh suddenly returns from whatever memory he's been transported to. He puts the cap on the canister and slips it back into his pocket. It took a few tries for our scientists to develop the right formula that wouldn't bring back the dreams, but would create the right brain chemistry for people to retain their ability to dream. Because it turns out those nighttime scenes do more than give us something funny to talk about with our friends in the morning. They play a role in how creatively we can think during the day, too. That pulls me into my own memory. When I was 11 years old, I woke up with the faintest whisper of a dream. There was a swing set in the most beautiful pond. The water was clean, and there were actual birds outside. And I wasn't wearing a mask. When I asked my mom where that world existed in real life, she smoothed back my bangs with a smile that seemed simultaneously sad but hopeful. One day you'll find your way back, she promised. This morning in bio was the first time I remember having a dream since then, which doesn't seem like a mere coincidence. I shift in my seat and the pendant stabs me in the hip. I pull it out by its chain. The letter said I should bring this to the bus if I was worried about the officials, but I was hoping you could tell me what these markings... We know you're in there, Ozar. Mr. Jensen's voice croons as he loudly bangs on the door. What the hell is my school principal doing here? Was he spying on me in the van? This is some next-level home-visit shit. Whatever nonsense they're filling your head with in there, it's not too late to get help. The resistance movement is just a bunch of misfits who want to bring chaos back into our world. They're anarchists, not environmentalists. I push the necklace back into my secret pocket the one my dad sewed into every single pair of pants I own. He told me it was for the rocks I liked to collect as I walked home from school. 
but he must have known I would need to hide something more important someday. Q grabs my hand and pulls me towards the back of the bus. I don't know where he thinks we're going, but he moves with such urgency it's clear he's got a plan. He grasps the last row of seats and tugs it forward. It looks like something in a movie. A staircase suddenly appears. It plunges so far into darkness, I don't know how deep into the earth it will take us. At least this time, I won't be by myself. When he pulls the trapdoor seat back into place, it's so dark I can't even see the shape of my own hand. Somehow his hand finds mine again. My pinky unconsciously wraps around his hand as if by habit. We're almost there, Q whispers, his hand gently tugging at mine. I wonder if he can feel my hesitation. I can't help the thoughts racing through my head. What if this is all a trick? I mean, how much do I know about this guy anyway? For all I know, he could have kidnapped the real Q and be taking me straight to the bureau himself. Maybe he's collaborating with my principal, and that whole thing was just a ploy to get me to trust him. I wish Luis were here with me. Not only is he the most logical person I know, he's also exceptionally good at judging people's characters, which is why I'm his best friend. Q's voice startles me. Once I open this door, it's going to get super bright, he warns. Realizing I have no choice but to trust the stranger, I follow him up the stairs and force my eyelids open as a beam of light attacks my face. I look around the basement. There's a laundry machine and several baskets of folded clothes that smell like the detergent my mom uses. My heart races, wondering if this is a safe house where my parents have been hiding. Maybe that's why they wanted me to follow the secret path to the bus, so Q could bring me to them. But as I look around, my eyes are drawn to the back wall, where someone has spray-painted the same series of lines and arrows from our pendants. I place a hand on the couch, suddenly feeling lightheaded. If Luis were here, he'd tell me hypnotism isn't a real thing. But I don't know how else to explain the way the lines and arrows are shifting, like they're pulling me into them. I look to Q, waiting for some sort of explanation, but he stares at me with sad eyes. I try to reach for his hand, but my fingers go through what should be his arm, and I can't help but think I was right to distrust him. What if my water was drugged and the effects were just delayed? The room spins and all I want is my mom to steady me. Q, I know you're there, I manage through gritted teeth. Please, tell me what the hell is happening. Did you drug me or something? Maybe he feels sorry for me because he finds his voice. You just have to trust me, Azar. Even with the antivitamins your mom gave you, there's still over a decade of vitamin water and vitamin-filtered school air in your body. This is the only way to show you. I know it'll make me seem desperate, but I can't help it. Can you hold my hand at least? No, he whispers, his voice cracking. But if you can manage to put the necklace around your neck, it should help. I wish I had the energy to yell at him and ask why the hell he didn't tell me to do that before we walked into the basement. I lower myself to the ground, hoping it will steady me long enough to pull the chain out of my pocket. It feels like being in the eye of the tornado, except it's my brain that's raging around in circles. My fingers struggle as I try to close the clasp around my neck, 
but the promise of possible relief gives me the motivation to keep going. And then, just like that, it ends. The room comes back into focus and Q helps me up. Before I realize what's happening, his arms are around my waist and he's pulling me to his chest. Out of shock, I push him away. Sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Your parents said it might take time. He steps back, his face flushing in embarrassment. And that's when the realization slowly sweeps over me. I know why he looks so familiar. Because this isn't my first time meeting him. Because he's not a stranger. I wait for the thoughts to settle like glitter taking too long to fall. My parents told me last year they were part of the resistance because I saw them using the trap door in the basement. I mumble, so they brought me to the bus and we met. The corners of his lips lift into a smile as if he's afraid his words will distract me from the memory's journey back to me. Now it's my turn to smile. And each time they went out of town for a resistance-related task, I came to see you. And you taught me all about the resistance. And when I told my parents a few months later I wanted to join, they told me I was too young to risk so much. And then I'm suddenly frowning. They gave me something to forget. To forget about their involvement with the movement. To forget about you. How could my parents violate me like that? How could they be fighting government control only to steal their own daughter's memories? He steps forward and grabs my hands. I was angry at first, too, but they explained your principal was growing suspicious and Luis was asking questions. They knew you'd end up telling your best friend everything. They were scared. But I didn't tell Luis about the letter this morning, and it didn't matter because Mr. Jenkins ended up somehow finding the bus today. Couldn't they have at least let me keep my memories, I stammer, or at the very least, instead of writing me some stupid letter this morning, they could have brought me here and explained all this themselves. I know I shouldn't be angry with my missing parents, but I can't help it. They were going to, but then the authorities got a tip-off and they knew it would be best for them to disappear. They were hoping it would lead them away from your house in the bus but something must have happened that made the authorities suspicious about you too. He looks at me with a look of curiosity more than judgment. I fell asleep in bio today, I whisper, and my principal accused me of dreaming. Were you? Q asks gently. I nod. He says nothing, waiting for me to continue. There was a bus. I close my eyes, trying to pull the images back, hoping they unfold into a story. The bus was midnight blue, and these lights I thought were stars, but I think they were this room. I opened my eyes to Q smiling. The bus used to be midnight blue. You and I painted it that color together one weekend because you said the headquarters for dreams should look more like the sky than the earth. He takes a few steps towards me, close enough that the faint scent of mint reaches for me. After they made you forget, I couldn't bear to look at the bus, so I painted it the dullest shade of yellow I could find. But I always hoped you'd find your way back. I wait for more memories to surface, but I know enough about the damage tornadoes leave behind to accept that things don't settle in the same place. Some things disappear forever. For now, I am thankful for the memories that have drifted back. 
I take Hugh's hand in mine and tug him to the washer. As if operating on muscle memory, I turn the knob to warm and the washer pops up, revealing another staircase. This one will lead to the safe house. Will they be there? I brace myself for a reality I don't want to accept. His eyes lower. Your parents were working with other scientists on this new renewable energy, and they were in talks with another government. But the Bureau tapped their phones and found out. It took everything in me to not show up at your house this morning and bring you here myself. But I knew you wouldn't remember me. My heart tightens at the look of pain in his eyes. So I waited in the bus all day, half hoping you would escape the scrutiny of the government and not need to use the trap door, and half hoping you would find yourself in trouble. I was getting ready to go back home tonight when I got the message on my watch indicating the trap door had been activated. And even that didn't prepare me for what I felt when I saw you outside the door. He touches the ends of my hair. You always said you wanted to grow it out. I want to throw myself at this beautiful, vulnerable boy. But then I remember, I'm not in some rom-com movie right now. There are more serious things that should be occupying my mind right now. Are my parents... Are they dead? I force myself to ask. No, no. He shakes his head. Our sources say they're in a holding cell. Once we've gotten a dreamful night of rest, we'll begin our search. And somehow, the promise of dreams soothes the fear away. Where there are nighttime dreams, there are daytime hopes. I am reminded of my father's favorite poet, Farouk Farakzad. An excerpt of her poem, On Loving, as translated by Shole Wolpe, is framed on my parents' bedroom wall. Wrapped in sleep silk, let me grow wings of light, fly through its open door, beyond the world's fences and walls. Do you know what I want of life? That I can be with you, you, all of you, and if life repeated a thousand times, still you, you, and again, you. And I can think of nothing better than to set off on a night of dreams with this boy who has reappeared in my life. Before I lose my nerve, I press my lips to Q's lips. He wraps his arms around my waist, and for a few minutes, we are just two young people content to be with one another. But you can only push away reality for so long. What's wrong? Q pulls back and looks at me, the concern heavy in his eyes. Luis is going to worry when I don't answer his calls or come to school on Monday. Q tugs me closer so my face comes to rest on his chest, his heart beats steady. I know, but if you want, when we get to that safe house, we can send him a text to let him know you're okay. I lift my face to look at him. But what if they trace the phone? Q shakes his head. We can scramble the message through text so they don't trace it. Even if Luis turns me in, I know it seems like a shitty thing for my best friend to do, but I swear it'd be only because he cares about me. I'm not judging him, Azar. Don't worry. It's not his fault he's never had an antivitamin before. He can't help but believe everything he's been taught. But if it's one thing I know, it's this. Nothing is as definite as it seems. He may surprise you. If it's anyone who's worth changing for, it's you. Part of me just wants to stay here with Q and create enough moments together that it won't matter as much that there are these pieces of the past that will never grow back. But no good will come from that. 
The anger with my parents is starting to settle now, and I know it's time to move forward. And maybe my memories will reveal themselves through my dreams, and Q will be here to fill in the gaps with the rest. This morning, I might have just been the sarcastic student in her principal's office, but I want to be more. I want to continue what my parents started. I pull Q's hand and we walk together towards whatever the future holds. Clearly, the government was right to fear buses. Next stop, dreams. Hi, Tina. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hi, Alicia. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, so we we had a, such a great recording um, just the other day now, um, and you've actually listened to some of the podcast, which is really nice, so you kind of knew what to expect. Um, so we're going to dig straight in right at the crux of uh, the short story, and what is the appeal of writing a short story for you? So it's interesting, because normally I don't write short stories. Like, normally I write poetry and I write novels, um, but... Short stories are something I've been experimenting with, I would say, like in the last couple of years, because mm-hmm. I wanted to work on my craft as a writer. Yeah. And I know for a lot of people, they're like, it's easier to work on your craft um, in a shorter story than it is on a novel. <laughs> and part of what like I wanted to do was to think about, you know, there. this was actually this specific story. I was debating making it into a manuscript. And I was like, before I dig into it as a manuscript, I might as well try to make it as a short story and see how the story feels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of the appeal was just to kind of test it out. I also, I, I teach high school creative writing. Oh, great. And so our short stories are one of our units. And I'm like, I might as well walk the talk and try to write it <laughs> myself. Great. How, how did that help with the teaching? How did it um, help you frame it for the, for the kids you teach? And how did they react as well? How was short story writing for them? I mean, they're amazing. So mm. for your listeners who have high school students, I mean, I am constantly amazed by my high schoolers. Shout out to my students at Eastside if they listen to this, because uh, <laughs> I think I'll probably share the link with them. You should, but yeah. I think it'd be kind of fun. Uh, but this actual, this particular story is one that I wrote last year before the unit started. Mm-hmm. I wanted to to try it out myself um, and see how I could like set it up for kids. And again, show them like, look, I'm growing my craft as a writer too, mm-hmm. because everything I do with them, I try to do what's realistic as writers. And so for this one, there's like this story cloud diagram that we use. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did the same thing. So I used the same thing they were using. And they actually, there was a few of them last year that read it. I use this for both my creative writing class and my um, freshman English class. And so it was kind of fun to like write the story and have some feedback from kids and like get inspiration from them as well. That's really great. So what's the process? I mean, obviously don't give away all your secrets, but what's what's the process that you took them on in order to craft the uh, short story and that this is from? So this story cloud diagram, I actually adapted from this book called Shaping the Story Mm -hmm. by Mark, I think Bechtel is his last name. But it's this idea of instead of outlining, you basically create this like cloud diagram. I think it's a cool little thing that he does. And you brainstorm a bunch of possibilities. So you don't have to commit, you know, for those of us who don't like to commit to a (laughs) storyline, we just brainstorm a bunch of stuff. And so for this story, I was trying to write a story set in an alternative, um, alternate reality. Mm -hmm. So it's futuristic. And so I kind of brainstormed some stuff around 
the setting and I brainstorm stuff around the characters. And then I think like most of us as writers, you start writing and then the characters take over and they kind of tell you where to go. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was really helpful for me. I've been moving more and more from being like a pantster to like a sort of plotter because I realize when you do a little bit of planning out, it's easier or else you're just Uh revising and revising. Yeah. Um, So the story, I started with that and then I started writing it last year and then I took a little break from it. And I had some of my other writing um, CPs read it and give me feedback. And then I did some revision. Great. So and and it's so nice that they get to take that whole process uh, in the same direction that you did. I'm sure they really loved seeing you kind of go through the work with them. Yeah, I think they enjoy it. I hope I hope they enjoy it to see like that their teachers not like making them do things that, you know, feels like busy work. Yeah. So that's the goal. So you you talked about that you write poetry um, and novels, um, and I know you've also had a play produced uh, by Golden Thread Productions. So, mm-hmm. so what is it that tells you that an idea is a short story instead of a novel or a play, or even in this case, poetry? I think for me, it it has to do with like, like I think about you know what's the the grain size I want to zoom in on. So like with this short story, for example, there was the possibility that I could have made it into a novel at some later point. And I think having finished it now, I was like, no, I kind of like looking at just this glimpse. Like I think about flash fiction, for example, which is mm. even smaller. You know, it's yeah. this like moment in time, and that to me is really really hard to write. Um, but I feel like the short story is like somewhere in between the flash fiction and the novel. So there, there's some more exploration of like the world and the characters, but you're still zooming in on a specific time. Poetry for me, like I started, my journey as a writer started with poetry. So I feel like even when I'm writing short stories or novels, there's always an element of poetry that I work in. Or I, I love yeah. the sound of words. I'm a little obsessed with the sound of words and people have to remind me, you need plot. You can't just have... <laughs> beautiful sounding words. And so I think that's part of what I think about also is I deal with similar themes in a lot of my writing. Mm. Um, Like this idea of dreams, I'm obsessed with dreams. So that comes up in a lot of the writing that I do. Mm. Um, But I think what I choose to focus on differs depending on the genre I'm writing and how much room I have to develop it. Yeah, I've always I've always instinctively kind of known what an idea is. It kind of just comes to me as so I have so many unfinished ideas, um some that are movies and they just wouldn't be a play or some that mm-hmm. are just novels and they just wouldn't be a movie. Um and I've never really been able to identify why that is. Um and I think one of it, it might very well lie in sort of preconceived ideas of what a short story should be or what's too frivolous for uh, literary fiction or what's too this for that. And one of the things I love about Next Stop Dreams is that it's this big world, it's this big concept in a small short story. Um, And so I'd really love to talk about how, one, how do you go about generating your ideas for all of the things you write? And then also, how did you settle on Next Stop Dreams? It's a really good question, Alicia. Let me think about it. (laughs) I had this English teacher in high school, Mm -hmm. and she was also a writer. And I remember her saying, you know, as writers, yes, you could just like write and that could be your thing. But a lot of what we do as writers is we take inspiration from the world around us. Mm -hmm. And so I think about for me, how much of that is true. Like a lot of my stuff, um, there's always a cultural element for me. Like I'm Iranian. And even if like this story, 
the focus is not necessarily on my culture or the fact that like I left Iran at a really young age, Mm -hmm. but it's still a part of her character and her relationship with her parents. And so I think there are certain aspects to the story that I know I'm always going to bring in. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the other piece is this story, just the premise of it, you know, was inspired by my students. And in my freshman English class, we were reading a bunch of stories by other writers of color um, that were all set in alternate, you know, realities. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about the importance of us as writers of color writing our own stories and imagining these futures and how do we grapple with some social issues. Mm. And so that was inspired by my kids, you know, like by my students. And I wanted to write a story where I could grapple with issues around not just climate change, because that was something there was a lot of talk about in education last year. So that was part of it. Mm. But also just what does it mean to think about the importance of dreams and dreaming and logic and, you know, what role do dreams play? Um, in the future and what would it look like if dreaming was illegal and so i think that's where the inspiration came from mm-hmm. and then from there it was more like okay who is this character that i want to build and like how does she react to the world and how do i add some tension and conflict with her her school setting and how do i make it small enough so that it feels like a complete short story mm. um when i wrote this story Last year, it was it was a lot shorter, and the co- and the um, the notes I got from my CPs, um, my critique partners this year, were really helpful. They're like, "What if you develop this?" And so I think as writers, like you said, it's sometimes you just you know it's going to be this, and you know it's going to be this. And I think when I got feedback from them, I was like, "Okay, I can expand this aspect a little bit more." But it was a challenge for me to be like, "How much do I expand mm. so that it still feels like a short story?" Versus now we're we're delving into novel territory. Yeah. So it was kind of a fun challenge just to try it out and see what, you know, to see what happened. I want to dig into a couple of things that you just said. One, the idea of writing in these alternate realities, um, especially when I think over the last year, we've kind of felt like we're living in something that yes. feels like an alternate reality. So, I mean, everyone has had their own sort of experiences with COVID. And I think that teachers especially are a certain kind of uh, magic unicorn that has been going through this year. So I'd love to know how you as a teacher have been working creatively with your students and kind of navigating that slightly alternate reality that we're living in and also um, sort of how that affected your story and kind of the moment that it was reflecting. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot of change that's happened over the course of this last year in just the landscape of education. Mm. And one thing that's been really exciting to me as an educator is the fact that we're having these conversations at schools about how do we support students like exploration of their passions Mm. and their independence and like just finding joy and like, you know, doing all that social emotional learning, but really helping them develop their own passions and not Mm. just doing work to do work. And so when I think about creative writing, um, like we have these discussions in the elective department that I belong to at my school. It's just, it's been really, really exciting this year to see the things that kids have created. I mean, they are, they are so creative, Mm. so creative. (laughs) And I think it's been like, I think there is like, we read this article, um, I can't, time is relative. So I don't remember if it was the start of this year or the end of last year. I think it was the end of last year. (laughs) But we read this article about just the need for creativity during times like this in the world Mm -hmm. and how 
you know, in a time when we feel like we're living in an alternate world and there are things going on politically and environmentally and socially and all that stuff, we need to make more room for the arts and for creativity, for expression. Mm. And I think back to that article a lot um, and how do we create that space for students, for them to express not just what they're feeling, but to like, you know, to use that energy to do something that they really love and they enjoy. Because if we're not getting joy out of education, like what are we doing? Right. That's so encouraging to hear teachers talking so brilliantly about creativity and uh, independence. Um, So there's this line in your bio on your website that says, with every story she tells, Tina comes closer to finding her way back home. And I feel that that is so one apparent in Azar's journey uh, back to dreaming. Um, And you say that it's in all of your stories. And I'd love you to dig into sort of how that play of, you know, interrogating what we really love and really honoring what we love to create um, in times of trouble. And then also sort of that journey back to dreaming and that journey back home, how that all kind of relates and how and why it's such an Im- important central theme to your writing. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes from so when I when I left Iran with my family, I was just two and a half years old. It was during Mm -hmm. the Iranian um, revolution. Mm -hmm. And I think it's even if I don't I don't remember the country like I was too young. So I always joke with people like all my memories are like my parents stories or photographs like they're not my own memories. Mm. Um, But for me, I think for a lot of us who come from a diaspora, no matter the reasons for why we left, there's always this tug, right? We feel like we're part of Um, Like we're in between worlds. Like I think about, I took a Chicano studies class when I was in college and I read this amazing um, writer, Gloria Saldua, and she talks about the borderlands and Mm -hmm. how important that is. And I connected so much to that. And so for me, I think about dreams as occupying, you know, that space, that in-between space, Mm -hmm. right? Where there's like reality and fantasy. And then when you wake up, I mean, it's kind of amazing when you think about how we wake up and we've just been part of this other world And sometimes our reality seeps into our dreams and our dreams seep into our reality. Like my husband hates it when I like wake up and I'm like, you were so mean in my dream. (laughs) And he's like, it wasn't me. I was like, no, but it was you. And so I think I'm fascinated by things that happen in between. And I think for me as a member of the diaspora, I feel so much um, a part of like that borderland space Mm. and writing is a way to get back home, right? So even if I haven't visited Iran since I left, it's like when I read other Iranian or Iranian American writers, mm-hmm. or I, you know, I think about the poetry that's part of my culture. I listen to music. Mm. Those are all words that make me feel at home. Yeah. And so I think for all of us, whether it's like a cultural home or something else, there's there's a reason why we create, and it takes us to that place. And it's kind of cool when you think about there are people who read our work or listen to our work, and for them, it's a different journey. Yeah. But we're all in that space together. Yeah, and I I really want to dig into into your story um, and and kind of the process of recording it and and all the decisions that we kind of made along the way. Um, But first, I want to kind of dig into the other element of this podcast and the audio format. And uh, are you a listener of audiobooks? And and why, why not? So um, we've listened to audiobooks as a family. I mean, we haven't been in a car to go on a trip to like Los Angeles forever, but that's something we do with our kids. Like I remember like we listened to... um, 
Jason Reynolds has this great middle grade uh, book called Ghost. And that uh-huh. was an amazing, he's amazing. I mean, he is so talented as a writer and oh, an yes. audiobook narrator himself. So we've listened to audiobooks um, as a family. I also listen, again, when I was driving, like commuting to the stationary shot by Marjan Kamali. She's an Iranian American writer. Mm-hmm. And I loved that. Um, I have not been listening to as many audiobooks lately because I'm not in the car and I feel like. I'm on a screen on a computer so long with headphones yeah. that I'm like, I can't, I'd rather just read a book. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's like recently, I don't think I've listened to as many audiobooks, but like, I, I think there's something really cool about listening to somebody narrate a story and be brought into that world. Um, sometimes it's hard for me because I read really fast right. and audiobooks <laughs> move slower. Um, but when I'm driving, like I found that it was really cool. Like when I was listening to the stationary shop, the person who does the audiobook is so good. And I could like, I was transported to the world. And so when I like read, there are parts that I read when I was at home, mm. I could hear her voice in my head, which was kind of cool. Like I haven't had that experience before when I've read a book yeah. and listened to the audiobook for different parts of it. Um, so yeah, I think they're a really cool genre and I enjoy them. I, I think it's just been hard this past year to make time for them. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's it's interesting. I hear some people who are saying that, you know, audiobooks have become their sort of uh, escape and they make themselves do things. And so they uh, they do jigsaw puzzles just so they can listen to that audiobook and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, and then I have found other people who it kind of comes into that Zoom fatigue sort of arena. Um, I also think it's really interesting what you say about because you're a fast reader. Um, and so that experience of an audiobook is kind of uh, you're wanting more and more quickly. And I know that some people listen to audiobooks at like 1.5 speed. And I have never been able to do that because it shifts into this weird, uncanny valley. And it feels like I'm then racing through the book. Which doesn't feel good, right? Because no. you're not feeling the energy of the person's um, voice. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just usually just listen to it. And I think if it's it takes me a while. Like, I don't know if it's the same thing for you, but it takes me a while to get into the audiobook in the beginning. Mm. And then once I'm there, then I'm like totally in. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm one of those people that, I mean, I think voices are so uh, sort of subjective in taste. And so there are some, sometimes I listen to an audiobook and I think, you know what, I'm not sure that this is the audiobook for me. I'll li- Maybe I'll read this. Um, but then obviously with my background in theater, I'm like, give me a performance. I want someone to like speak to me as though I'm right here in the moment. Right. So the performance is really important to me as someone who has a background in theater. And I really find it has that sense of immediacy. But if you're someone who, you know, reads really quickly, an artificially enhanced pace is just not the way for me to experience an audiobook or podcasts. I just can't, I just can't manage that sort of hyper reality right i agree talking about hyper reality your story um you know alternate reality is something that feels very very different um how was it recording your story i mean it was kind of magical i'm not gonna <laughs> lie like i love magic and stories and i was like when i was listening to the recording that you put i was like she's got a little bit of magic in her that alicia um, <laughs> thank you <laughs> because and it was interesting because um it was, it was different, right? Like, I like being coached. Like, I didn't mind that you stopped me. But I thought it was interesting because it's things I would never have thought about at all, mm. you know? Like, I hear the voices in my head. I have a sense of these characters. 
And as a writer, I know how to bring that across to the reader on the page, Mm. but I've never thought about how to bring that across to the reader through my voice. And so I think about, you know, like I do as an English teacher, like I've done a lot of reading aloud to kids. Like that part wasn't weird, Mm -hmm. but I haven't thought about like, how do you bring it across when, when you're not looking at the page? Right. Mm -hmm. And so that was a really interesting experience to me to have you coach me through, you know, like, how do you show that punctuation mark, Tina, or how do you create different voices for Azar and for Q? Like, how are you going to make them sound different? Or how do you make the narration sound different than the dialogue? Mm -hmm. So that was really cool. And it was interesting when I was listening to the recording that you sent me um, to see that in action. You know, I was like, it's always weird when you hear your own voice. Yeah, (laughs) Um, It's not something I'm used to. And I was like, is that what I am? I was like, okay, that's what I sound like. Um, (laughs) But it was cool to be like, oh, my God, that was a story. And it wasn't like I made voices that sounded different because that bothers me in audiobooks when people are, like, creating new voices. Um, But I could, like, as I was listening to it, I was like, that's the part where Alicia told me to make my voice like this. And I was like, this is kind of fun. So I thought it was a really interesting experience. And, again, like, I always like to think about, you know, the thing we were talking about before of how do we draw inspiration as writers, Mm. it also made me think about how do I think about the stuff we did with voice and how do I bring that on the page, right? So it's not just page to voice, but did I learn something new? Like I learned something new about my characters as I was reading it out loud. That's great. Um, And normally I, I read my stuff aloud so I can hear it and I tell my students to do that all the time, but I don't think about how to bring their voices and stuff across. So I think with Q especially, I got a much better sense of his character through doing the recording with you. What were the things that really sort of shifted for you in that in that process with Q? I think just the way he was trying to be a calming force for her. Mm. And I hadn't thought about him. Like, he was like a side character. I was like, there's some interesting, like, you know, plot twists that happened there. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't thinking about his like his tone and how he's just kind of like this calm cool force and so that I could highlight the parts where you know how it was hard for him right when yeah he like saw her again so that was interesting for me as the writer to kind of rediscover that and I think a lot of times as writers you know in our head it makes sense but we're not thinking right away Mm -hmm. about how we want to bring across certain aspects of their characters to really put that on the page and so I think that was an interesting exercise for me to think about, you know, how would I like, does that come across on the page? Are there things I would do differently in the future? Um, It was a cool, it was a cool exercise. That's great. I love it when people um, come out of this process and think that they found something new in their characters and sort of going forward. And I'm, I'm really interested to know that sort of going forward, is there anything you can take from that re- recording session that you think is going to actually really inform the way that you you write in, in the future? I think just thinking about like tone more in terms of like characters. Like mm. I think about, I, I like, I mean, you might've known this, like I like sarcasm. I'm sarcastic <laughs> in person and I like sarcasm on the page. And so I think like thinking about the little hints, like we made, we made it more apparent through voice, right? And there mm-hmm. were like little hints that I left as I was, as I, that you coached me through as I was reading it. Mm-hmm. And so I think thinking about, you know, how do I create more distinction on the page with tone? So that comes across, like, I'm curious, like, can I ask you a question? Am I allowed to do that on the podcast? You can totally ask me a question. <laughs> Excellent. So like when you were like, how did you know to coach me to make him calmer? Cause I'm curious to you, like, what are the things you saw 
in his character where they kind of see where he seems separate than Azar did. Well, I think he initially his character felt very in control, whereas Azar was having this whole new world blowing up experience. And so her energy on the page felt very sort of high, upbeat. She felt very sort of um, anxious and and. He, the the way that his phrasing's a, a lot shorter than hers um mm. uh the fact that we didn't want him to be sort of authoritarian in his sort of i know more than you because obviously we had the principal who is this authoritarian figure we needed him to contrast um and so with the way that you were reading azar like it felt very high tempo and i think it was just um it was a combination of sort of you know the pacing you'd already had on the on the page but also that desire to kind of create a balance with her um, and kind of because it's very difficult to listen to something that there's all one uh, pitch yeah. like it's all really up here and it's going and going and going and going you need that sort of rhythm to shift and you need it to change um, because that's ultimately how you how you keep a, a listener's attention and like if you look at a page and um, one of the things I love about when I'm reading is like I can or- always see the moments that writers really want me to pay attention to because they're a short sentence and they might even be a, a, a sentence on their own like outside of the paragraphs and it might be like paragraph short sentence paragraph um, mm-hmm. and that kind of creates that sense of rhythm and I guess I want to yeah when I was talking to you I was like well what what's cue feeling here what does he want to uh you know how does he want to affect Arza? you were saying well you know he like he knows what she doesn't and we talked a lot about the foreshadowing um, right. and kind of that pathetic fallacy what the uh what we didn't know but he did um and so that's kind of why you know when we were talking about it I sort of coached you to be low and slow and calming and that just really yeah soft in control uh, reassurance does that answer your question yeah no it does I think it's just it's interesting because it's it's like something and I think this is the thing I want to think about as a writer is like even if I meant that I don't know that I was intentional about it mm. so I think this is something I want to think about more intentionally is is that tone right like how do I bring that across and you know not just like I definitely agree with you I think we always experiment with like line length and sentence mm. length right I did I did get a little fresher with myself I was like oh my god why do I write such long sentences because <laughs> my god is it harder to like read all this and I'm like god Tina I wish you had written some shorter <laughs> sentences in there so that was also interesting because that's not something I normally think about um as I'm writing because mm. I'm reading it you know you are not the first author to come out of a recording <laughs> going, why do I not write shorter sentences? <laughs> Who is this? Who wrote this? <laughs> so I'm really interested to know about, so for me, speculative fiction is so exciting. When you take something abstract, in this example, dreams, and you put it into a world that we recognize so you can control Mm -hmm. whether or not you can have dreams you put it into a world that we recognize so Mm. a world that is damaged by uh, climate change it's damaged by an authoritarian government Um, and you have this sort of sci-fi futuristic speculative element and I'd love to talk to you about how you decided to put in those elements and then also when it came to audio how did we uh, heighten that with our soundscape with the music mm. and what did that do mm-hmm. to you as a listener and as the author listening to your own work yeah so even though 
like my my manuscripts I would say are more realistic fiction there's always Mm -hmm. a piece that's like the the touch of magic you know and so I think with this story um I knew like that's that's what I love I love putting in something with dreams or an element of magic and I like to brace it in reality. So I think when I think about climate change, like I think there are different directions we can go. And so in my head, I was really trying to imagine a world where, you know, because I think this is accurate, people are denying change. They don't want to change. Uh-huh. And so I was trying to imagine a world where they're like, no, 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 we're just going to keep going and we're going to figure out a way for people not to like freak out. And mm-hmm. so if we take away their dreams, it's going to be fine. And I also am just, I'm, I'm intrigued by throughout history how there's always been pushback and there's been resistance. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of wanted to to meld those things together, right? Like, uh-huh. what's the group that's going to be the resistance movement? Like, they're going to be scientists, but they're fighting for dreams. Like, it's kind of like, it doesn't it doesn't fit the, the narrative, right? Mm-hmm. And so I like writing things. Again, I think it goes back to that borderland space where we can imagine this like mishmash of stuff because I think sometimes as a society we kind of see the world as just it's this or it's that. Mm -hmm. And the reality is it's more complex and complicated. And so I think it's cool in speculative fiction how we can kind of um, throw out people's expectations and think about like, well, what would it look like if we did things a little bit differently or we did more of a a mishmash? Um, I think what was interesting for me when I was listening to the audio is I loved, I mean, it was hard listening to my voice, but (laughs) I was kind of brought into the world and I was like, I could hear the like the parts where, you know, um, I tried to slow down Ozar's voice because you're like, put a little bit more emphasis on that. And I could feel that tension with her. Um, I loved the sound effect you added. Like, I remember that was something we talked about. And that part, I was like, oh, my God, my heart's beating fast. I thought, I'm, I'm like, it's not quite Jumanji, you know, but it's, I don't know if you, I love the, the new Jumanji movie. Me too. But I'm like, <laughs> it's kind of that feeling of like, oh, my God, we're like, what's going on? What's happening here? Mm-hmm. And then when it ended, I was like, ah. So I thought that was fun. Like, that's something I've never experimented with. And so it was interesting to think about how a sound effect isn't like, oh, there's a knock on the door. Like, what role does sound play mm. to kind of build that tension? And that was really cool to to experience as a listener to the story. Yeah, I remember when we were recording, um, I hadn't thought about the the sound up until that moment. And we got to that moment and we were talking about what this moment felt like for Azza. And you were talking about this kind of all-consuming, and it says in the text, sort of a hypnosis um, then there's that moment it's gone and we talked about it and you like as soon as I mentioned I wanted some sort of like vroom vroom sound effect you got really excited about that and which made me go yes you know when you find something that really honors the author's vision for a moment um because I'm not huge on sound effects um in sort of my day-to-day audiobook directing and producing but it's one of the reasons I love producing short stories is that you kind of don't have to commit to 15 hours of the same sound effect and it's very much like in so I come from a theater background and one of the things that my coaches would always say to me if you set up a format if you set up um so for example if you're doing a black box theater piece where you have no set um you have to invest in that all the way if you then invite um a random chair into a scene in the second act that in itself is going to mean something. Um, and so I've always been very uh, deliberate when I set up um, 
a specific style or a specific um, uh, element uh, so that I don't have to buy into it too much if I'm doing like a 15 hour audio book like it might be too much but that's what I love about short stories um and especially with this one I loved picking the music for this one as well um my husband composes for for all of the pieces I said it needs to be kind of like futuristic but it needs to have a sense of magic um and yeah and I I loved kind of setting up that that feeling so yeah, I, I'm really glad you liked it and that it kind of honored your vision of what you wanted the story to be like. Yeah, it's not like it's a character, but it's like if settings were characters, I feel like it adds to mm. that, right? Like, and I, I kind of, again, like I think about there are things that we do with our voice and then there's things that are more elemental. And so I just, I don't know, it felt really seamless to me what you chose. Um, it didn't feel like an add-on. Like I'm always asking my creative mm. writing students to be really intentional with the choices they make. Yeah. And we don't want to add on things just to be like, oh, check, did that, check, did that. Like, And here's a gimmick, yeah. Yeah, it's that's not what like storytelling is. And I think what's interesting to me about like the audio um, book world that I thought about as we were recording this together mm. is that storytelling started with like, you know, oral traditions, right? Like I think yeah. about for a lot of us, the stories we heard as kids or the stories that are passed on in our cultures and the role that the voice plays in that mm. is magical. And so I think there's always a part of us when we're trying to capture it on the page, like how do we capture that storytelling magic? And so it was cool to see it go back like, okay, there's on the page and now how do we bring it to like a, an audio version that it was, it wasn't just like oral storytelling from the beginning. I don't know. Mm. So that, that was kind of intriguing to me too. No, I think that, no, I, I want to dig into that a bit further because I, I also have that same sort of fascination with what it is to be verbally telling stories and then reading them from a page because it, there is that sort of person to person connection that you get that author to listener that author to reader and you kind of share this creative magical space together and um, so yeah absolutely and I have such strong memories of being read to as a child um, and, you know, those family stories that kind of grow through as you grow up and you, they kind of warp and change. And that I, I have such strong memories of those stories. And so whenever I have an audiobook recording or on this podcast, I always want to create the sort of feeling that it's someone you know is telling you the story. Right. Well, because like I think about it, like I don't know if you listen to spoken word, but like mm. I love spoken word. And I there was a time in my life when I like did a lot more spoken word. And I was part of this like group that we performed once together. Mm, and I think about great. that as a genre, which is also really interesting, right? Because I think that occupies an interesting space yeah. of of performance. But there's so many different ways of doing spoken word. Um, but it's a storytelling thing. And you really feel like they're speaking to you. Mm. And so I think it's interesting when we think about all these different genres and it's like what you're saying, it's at the end of the day, it's like we want the audience to feel like we're speaking to them and that they can take something from the story. Maybe that we didn't intend mm. as writers or creators, but that we're experiencing it together. Yeah, and I think I, because I also come um, from sort of, I'm not a playwright myself, but that idea of a playwright being someone who writes something and then it's hands off and then it's you know it's mm -hmm. thrown to the wolves and you have no say um I really love that um sort of once it's out of your hands it's up to other people to interpret and to connect and to share and kind of build this whole community around your the idea you had right 
Uh, and I think sort of, yeah, spoken word, reading, theatre, audiobooks, they all kind of inhabit this world and kind of it's it feels like it's just weighted slightly differently in each medium, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you've talked about how it's kind of that the process has kind of inspired you to sort of think about sort of di- things differently in your writing. I'm really interested uh, to know sort of ha- how the experience has changed or added to your feelings about audiobooks and the audio production and, and kind of what that what you knew about it before this. I mean, I think like I always knew that people who did it were were gifted, right? And that it's not something that everybody can just do. But I think I have a whole nother appreciation. I think I mentioned this to you when I was even listening to the like the the podcast that you had of, of your other guests, mm. right? And I assumed they just did it all in one shot. And I was like, God, how are <laughs> they doing it all in one shot? And I think when I was listening to an audiobook, I was like, oh, they take breaks. But I assumed like, well, you're just you're reading it out loud and they're just really gifted. And I didn't think about how um, how much coaching and teaching is involved in the process of doing it. And so I think that was interesting for me to kind of see like the behind the scenes look of like, how is this actually happening? And when I was listening to the the recording, I was like, you can't even see the pause. Like, that's amazing to be like, <laughs> you stop and you like, and I don't know, like in my head, I guess it sh- I should have known, right? It's like, I watch enough movies to know, mm-hmm. like in movies, it's the same thing, right? Like how many cuts have they done of the same scene? But I think in my head, I hadn't connected it like audiobooks are the same way. It's not like they're just reading an entire chapter and then taking a break to drink some water and then getting right back into the work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for me, it's like, I think of it like like when I teach my students um, like song analysis and they're like, Tina, you've ruined music for me forever. All I'm doing <laughs> is analyzing lyrics now. And so, and I'm like, no, that's a good thing. And so I think for me, the process has done the same thing. Like I'm appreciating the art that that goes into and like the craft that's involved Mm. And using your voice to tell a story um, and how that, like everything we do, like takes time and practice and and work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's been really cool for me to kind of hear it and still enjoy the storytelling, but realize like how much effort and work and collaboration, you know, went into that that audio part that I don't think we always think about when we're listening to somebody, you know, read a story on an audiobook. I mean, I think, and again, with all of the art forms you've mentioned, it is it, part of the art form is to make it feel seamless so that someone's able right. to get themselves lost in, in the creation. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I always warn people, and I warned you before we got into it, I was like, we're going to stop and start quite a bit. Um, because there is that difference um, in sort of, I mean, a performer, this is their job. They do it all the time. Um, and then even if it's nonfiction and it's an author narrator, it's still very much coming from you. But there is that sort of experience of being someone who's not trained in performance and you're going to be essentially performing someone else. And so that's why this this particular podcast, we do coach a lot. Um, because, you know, I want people to really get that experience of, um, you know, hearing a really nice... A highly performed piece it's never as seamless as it looks or sounds um and I mean I I know that I direct I produce um and then recently for my writing I thought you know what I'm just I'm struggling with the voice of this character I'm gonna record myself reading it and um, just to kind of see if I can uh, you know get some more from that and 
I found it so difficult um, to do it yourself, to do it myself. And, you know, like I said, I've got a performing background. I've got a directing background um, and I still just found it so challenging. And it took me a really good amount of time to kind of get a take on it that I was happy with um, as well. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a bit of an eye opener to me as well. <laughs> that, may, that makes me feel better. I mean, I remember like when we were recording, I was like so proud of myself when I got through a paragraph <laughs> and I was like, yes, progress. Uh, because I do, like you said, it's, it's a skill, mm. right? And it's not something that you just, I mean, I guess there are some people where it's like, it comes more easily to them just like with anything. Um, but I think it it was cool seeing that aspect of like just like even even just say each word, Tina, because like when I talk, I talk fast and my words kind of just blend together. And I hadn't thought about what you said about, well, when somebody is listening to this, they they need to hear the words because they have nothing in front of them mm-hmm. to look at. Yeah. So that was really interesting for me to experience from that angle as well. I mean, I'm I'm so glad you had such an enjoyable experience, um, and that you like the outcome. It has been such a pleasure having you um on the podcast. And where can people find you if they if they want to know more about you, your writing, your teaching? T- tell us where they can find you. So I'm on Twitter. That's probably the best place. I have Instagram that I post some stuff on, but really Twitter's the place to find me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's my long last, so it's like my first name and my long last name, which they should just copy off of the um, the, the site that you're going to put this on. Um, <laughs> and then I also have a website. Um, and so as things happen, like I've had some poetry published, I'll definitely link it there. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully um, my book's on submission. So hopefully as things start moving and shaking in the publishing um, industry, yeah. I'll have more to more to share for people to read if they enjoy the short story. Well, I certainly look forward to uh, reading more of your work um, and I'm sure the listeners will too. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Alicia, for having me. This was great. Thank you so much to Tina for sharing her story and process with us this week. Thank you to Teddy Merricks for the music, sound design and logos. And thank you, of course, to you for listening. I'd love it if you could take a second to show the podcast some love. Share it on your social media, force your family to listen to it in the car, give it a review. It would mean so much to me. If you're interested in getting involved, either by submitting your short story or having a chat with me about audiobooks, you can find more info and contact details on my website at englishgirlinnewyork.org. I also hang around on Instagram under at aliciasbooks.n.bobs, as in books and bobs. This was In Short, the podcast from Blanket Fort Productions. See you all next time. <laughs>